Uh, I'm going to do something this morning that I don't do most weeks. I'm going to assume that not everyone in here is a Christian. I don't, I don't do that most weeks. Don't get me wrong, when I step up here every week, I understand that there's a pretty good chance that there are people here, perhaps even people who come here regularly, who don't know Christ. In fact, there may be several individuals here who think they know Christ, but don't. I understand that's a potential, perhaps even a likely reality, every week I step into the pulpit. However, I don't preach that way. I don't preach as if the people I'm addressing don't know Christ. And there's a very logical explanation for that, and it's because when I preach, I'm preaching to the church. That's who this worship service is for. That's why it exists. It's an opportunity for those who know Jesus Christ to gather together with other people who know Jesus and worship Him together. And sure, unbelievers may wander into the middle of that worship service and observe it, but the service isn't really for them. It's for the Christians here among us. And so likewise, when I preach, I don't typically preach for the unbeliever, though I understand there may be several here. No, I I, I preach for the believer. This is a worship service for believers, and so my preaching is aimed at them. That's the intended audience. And practically speaking, this means that I don't usually step up into this pulpit and proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, because I'm assuming that the people I'm addressing, the people that this worship service is for, they've already heard that message and responded. They've believed. They've repented. And now what they want to know is, how do I live now that I believe? And that's basically what I try to explain from week to week. I try to make those who know Christ more acquainted with their God. I'm trying to help them shed the old way of thinking that they lived by when they were in bondage to sin and replace it with a new way of thinking that's to be found in Christ. Basically, I'm trying to explain what it means to live like a Christian. Or if I'm not explaining it, I'm trying to encourage them to live it, either through exhortation or admonishment. point is, I'm trying to help the church apply the gospel. I'm assuming they believe it. Now, where do we, how do we live in light of it? That's the question I'm trying to answer from week to week. And, and just to make this clear, that's not because I'm unconcerned with evangelism. It's just that I think this is how evangelism works. The church, which is to say the body of Christ, the church is the vehicle through which Jesus intends to reach the, church, the, the earth with his gospel. And so the church assembles on Sunday morning. They are edified in their faith through the preaching of the scripture. They grow in their knowledge of God, and they grow in their love for Him. And this, in turn, equips them and motivates them to go out into the world and share their faith. So again, the reason why I assume the gospel is not because I think everyone in here is a believer, and it's not because I'm not concerned about the salvation of the lost. Rather, it's because of what I think the Bible says about the way that the lost will be saved and the role that the worship service plays in that. What we're doing here is not so much making disciples in the sense of converting individuals, but maturing them so that we can all go out into the world and share our faith. That's Jesus' plan for the church. And it's a very effective one. If it's done right, then the gospel can spread very, very quickly under this model. All to say I'm addressing Christians when I preach. And this means that I'm not usually saying, repent and believe, at least not in the sense where I'm calling you to exercise saving faith. Again, I understand that even faith is something that we as Christians grow in, and so many weeks I'm calling on Christians to repent of their ongoing unbelief as they try to exercise their faith in Christ at a practical level. I'm saying repent and believe in that sense, 
But I'm not saying it in the sense of turn from your life of wanton rebellion against God and embrace His Christ. As imperfect as we are, we've, we've done that generally as Christians. We certainly struggle in our faith, but even in the struggle, we believe and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm assuming that week to week when I get up here to preach. This week, though, I'm not doing that. Today I'm coming to you and I'm saying, don't assume that you're a Christian. Don't assume you're a Christian. Examine yourselves to see if you are indeed in the faith. Test yourselves. You may not be a Christian. You may be deceived. And if you are, you still need to repent. So examine yourselves. Assume nothing. And the reason why I'm doing this is because of what Jesus says in this morning's passage, which is Matthew 23, 13 to 15. If you haven't already done so, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 23, 13 to 15. If you recall, it is still Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the Sunday before His crucifixion. He cleansed the temple on Monday. On Tuesday, He comes back into the temple where He's greeted by this unlikely coalition of religious leaders who have gathered together in order to challenge Jesus. They're unhappy about the popularity that He's enjoying among the crowds. They're upset that He has had the audacity to come and cleanse the temple and tell them to repent. And so they gather together on Tuesday to try to discredit Jesus with this series of theological challenges in the temple. In today's passage, Jesus has just finished fielding these challenges. And He's answered every single one of them with tremendous insight and skill. In short, He's won the debate. It's over. His foes have been vanquished. He is the victor. And everybody knows it. And so with victory in hand, Jesus now turns to the crowds and to the disciples, and He responds to what's just happened by publicly condemning the scribes and the Pharisees for their hardness of heart. This is one of those moments where the sin and hypocrisy of Israel's religious leaders has been clearly exposed. Everybody can see it, because Jesus has made it obvious The leaders have come to trap Jesus, and in the process, they've been trapped. Jesus' answers have exposed the fact that they are the ones who are resisting the truth, not Jesus. And so now, in this moment of clarity, Jesus seizes the opportunity to free the crowds of their corrupt influence, the corrupt influence of these leaders, by publicly denouncing their leadership, while the memory of their hard-heartedness is still evident and fresh. On everyone's mind. As I've said in past weeks, these are some of the strongest words that Jesus ever says about anyone. He holds nothing back. This declaration that he gives here is a declaration of utter condemnation. And it comes in two parts. First, before Jesus really gets going, he turns to the crowds and he says to them, Don't be like them. He tells them how to avoid their fate. And then second, he launches into this no-holds-barred rebuke of the religious leaders for the hypocrisy they've demonstrated in their leadership of Israel. Over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the first part of this discourse. And now today, we move into the second half. We move into the rebuke. Over the, past, over the next few weeks, Jesus is going to explain what the religious leaders did wrong. And he's going to explain what was wrong with what they did. 
So we have to, that to look forward to in the coming weeks. Jesus is going to explain the error in the Pharisees' thinking. But today he starts with the result. He explains the fruit of their hypocrisy and the damage that it's inflicted on Israel. In other words, I think if we're trying to understand why Jesus speaks so strongly against the religious leaders, this is where we have to go. This is why. And as I think we'll see in just a moment, it's a pretty good reason. I mean, I'm sure you've probably noticed before, right, that Jesus is incredibly harsh in his assessment of the Pharisees. He clearly loathes many of these men, if not most of them, right? Perhaps at some point you've wondered why. What's the big deal? Why is Jesus so passionate in his criticism of these leaders? What have they done? Well, today's passage answers that question. And this is what Jesus says. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. If you notice, there are two woe-to-you statements in this passage. Jesus issues a total of seven woe-to-you statements here in chapter 23. And it appears that these seven woes are delivered in the form of three pairs plus one. Basically, Jesus will make two woe statements, and these two woe statements will be clumped together along a particular theme. They'll address a specific issue before he then moves on to another woe pair that addresses a different issue. Well, I think the key to understanding this pair occurs with the second woe. The one where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Of course, in the first woe, Jesus charges the Pharisees with shutting people out of the kingdom of heaven. He says that they neither enter in themselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. We talked about how and why this happens last week in our message uh, about defending against hypocrisy. As Jesus has already pointed out in this passage, the hypocrite loves the praise of men. And this means that they crave the external. They want a righteousness that is defined by one's actions because they can control that. And they can manipulate and bully others through that kind of a system in order to be seen as superior. Well, not only has Jesus categorically condemned that kind of a system throughout His ministry, And not only is he about to do it again here, by the way, not only has he done that, but by this point in his ministry, the people are actually embracing him en masse as the promised Davidic king. The religious leaders don't like this. They've never liked this about Jesus. They want glory, and yet with every miracle that Jesus performs, he gets more and more of it. And not only that, but if as the people suppose he's the Davidic king, then this means that all of the power and authority in Israel rightly belongs to him. Again, the religious leaders can't stand this. And so every time that the people are on the verge of embracing Jesus, they're right there to stop them. They have been throughout Jesus' ministry. They'll say that Jesus casts out demons by the power of Satan, or they'll threaten to kick people out of the synagogue, 
or they'll try to trap Jesus in His words, or when they're really desperate, they'll just plead with Jesus to tell the crowds to stop. And then, of course, when none of that works, they just up and arrest him under the cover of darkness, try him in a kangaroo court, and blackmail the sitting Roman prefect and put him to death. It's like we've seen over the past couple of weeks. The hypocrite isn't actually concerned with righteousness or truth. They only feign interest. In reality, they're concerned with their own glory, and they'll bully and intimidate other people to get it. Well, throughout his ministry, every time that Jesus has discussed what righteousness really is, or every time that he's pointed to the reality of who he is, this is what, how the scribes and the Pharisees have responded. They've tried to bully and intimidate Jesus, and then when that didn't work, they did it to the crowds. Just whatever it takes to keep people from believing Jesus and giving God the glory. It doesn't matter how much Scripture Jesus has supplied to prove his point. It doesn't matter what kind of signs or wonders He's given as evidence to His authority. It doesn't matter who testifies about Him. They simply refuse to acknowledge the truth themselves, or for that matter, let anyone else acknowledge it. And they're about to do it again. That's what's been going on here in the temple. And Jesus knows this is going to escalate. Jesus has, has just finished defending Himself so beautifully in the temple that it appears that perhaps even some of the Pharisees are themselves on the verge of believing in Him. But what's going to happen in just two days here? Jesus is going to be arrested under the cover of darkness and put to death. That's how desperate they are to silence Jesus. And Jesus knows this. In fact, by the end of this discourse, He's basically going to taunt them over it. That's the seventh woe, the plus one. In the three pairs plus one, he's going to say, in the last woe, Woe to you, for I know you're so hard-hearted that you will not accept anything that God has to say. You're just like your fathers who kill the prophets. So just go ahead and do it already. Join them in their condemnation and fill up the measure of your iniquity. In its most basic form, this is the result of the Pharisees' teaching. It not only kept them out of the kingdom of heaven, but it shuts other people out as well. They were so full of hypocritical pride that they labored to keep people from recognizing the truth. And already I think you can see why Jesus saves then His harshest words for the scribes and the Pharisees. They know the truth. They can see it. But they're so stubborn that they not only, not only do they refuse to acknowledge it, but they're actively working to keep other people from acknowledging it. And people are going to go to hell for it. The religious leaders are knowingly deceiving people for their own benefit, and people are going to suffer for eternity because of it. Is there anything more heinous than this? Is there anything more wicked than this? I mean, this is the type of thing that Satan does, right? He knowingly deceives people in order to shut them out of the kingdom of heaven. Is it any wonder then that in John 8, Jesus says to these men that the devil is their father? I mean, that's exactly how they're acting. If a child is known by their resemblance to their father, then it's pretty apparent that these men, who they belong to, right? Whether they realize it or not. 
Well, again, this is the result of the scribes and Pharisees teaching in its most basic form. It shuts people out of the kingdom of heaven. That's why Jesus condemns them so harshly. However, I think if, you, if you're going to really understand the full effect of their hypocrisy in its most advanced expression, then you have to look at the second law in this passage. There, Jesus explains that the Pharisees didn't just shut people out of the kingdom of heaven, but they actually made them twice as much a child of hell as themselves. In other words, they didn't just shut people out of the kingdom of heaven, they actually made their condition worse than it was before. They made it worse even than that of the scribes and the Pharisees themselves. And you can see why Jesus would say this. Because you see, the proselytes' problem isn't only that they've accepted a damning religious system when they listen to the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. The proselytes' problem is that they actually believe it's true. This is the difference between the crowds and the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees at least had enough education to know that they were believing a lie. They had enough education to realize that they were suppressing the truth. The people didn't know that. They were simply trusting what the scribes and the Pharisees told them, that it was true. After all, they're the ones with a theological education, right? So while you could at least say that there's some hope for the hypocritical scribe and Pharisee, because they at least know that the lie is a lie, enough that they can perhaps eventually reject it. The people don't have that advantage. They're sold out to the lie. They believe it. They've completely bought in. And so apart from the repentance of their leadership, they have no hope. They're stuck. So like the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't just shut people out of the kingdom of heaven. No, they locked them out and threw away the key. The people have been made essentially irredeemable as a result of the scribes and Pharisees' hypocritical leadership. They're trapped in their unbelief. Again, I think you can see why Jesus is so furious with these men. It's like he said back in the Sermon on the Mount, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And if you were here when I preached on that passage, perhaps you'll recall that the imagery there is not that of a wolf that looks like a sheep. That's not what it means to be dressed in sheep's clothing. No, the idea is that it is a wolf dressed up as a shepherd. Israel's prophets were the ones who donned animal skins as a sign of their separation from society and as a sign of their sorrow over Israel's sin. This is what it means to wear sheep's clothing. It's to dress up as a prophet, to come as a shepherd of Israel. This was the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees. They sat in the seat of Moses, right? You know, Moses, that first great shepherd of Israel, they sat in his seat. But instead of leading the people into the promised land, they ravaged and devoured them in the wilderness. They took the appearance of a shepherd, but inwardly they were ravenous wolves. And this is something that every teacher in the church must keep in mind, by the way. Anyone who repeats this sin and knowingly lies to God's people for their own benefit, if they mislead God's people, if they twist the meaning of the gospel, for instance, in order to boost the attendance figures at their church, because they, like the Pharisees, love the praise of men, and they want to be esteemed by men for the size of their church, If they do this, then the same condemnation from Jesus awaits them on the day of judgment as well. It should sober the thinking of any potential leader. So much does Jesus hate the damning effects of false religion. If you stop to consider what Jesus is saying here, I think it should remind you of the illustration that Jesus gave back in the wake of the original 
blasphemy of the Spirit in Matthew 12. There Jesus says that this generation is going to be like a man who has a spirit cast out of him. And the spirit wanders through waterless places seeking rest before eventually resolving to go back to his host. And when he goes back, he finds that man's soul cleaned up. And it's so accommodating that he decides he's going to bring seven more spirits, more wicked than himself, to come and possess that man along with him. Jesus says, this is what this generation is going to be like. That's the danger of false religion. It doesn't just deceive a person. It actually seals them in their deception. Because now, not only is the person under condemnation, but they don't even know it. They actually think they're saved. You know, this was me up until my senior year of college. I I accepted a false gospel in third grade. And after that, I thought I was good. I didn't go looking for God or looking for Jesus because I thought I already had Him. What was there to look for? It was only because of the dogged pursuit of the Holy Spirit who convicted me of the truth as I read the Scriptures for myself. It's only because of what He did there that I'm able to stand before you today. And preach the gospel. And even then, it was only after a lot of inner conflict and turmoil as I had to fight to leave behind certain truths that I was explicitly told by leaders never to question. Again, this is the danger of false religion. It acts like a kind of vaccine. You guys know how vaccines work, right? They work on the concept of immunity. Essentially, they use your body's ability to adapt against the virus. After you receive a particular strain of a virus, your body adapts to that virus. It figures out how to beat it. It learns the virus's code, so to speak. And that's why people typically get something like chickenpox only once. After they get it the one time, their body is able to destroy any future infections very, very quickly. Well, the way that vaccinations work is that they actually infect you with a virus. It's a weakened form of the virus, one that won't ultimately make you feel sick. Not typically, but it's still an actual virus. Your body then fights and kills that virus. In the process, it learns the code. And then in the future, when you come in contact with that virus in its stronger forms, you won't get sick. You're immune. That's how vaccines work. They give you just enough of the virus to make you immune, but not enough to make you sick. Well, this is how false religion works. False gospels work. It takes a weakened form of the gospel... And then it gives you just enough to make you immune without actually making you, quote, sick. It gives you just enough religion, just enough truth to make you feel like you know God, just enough to make you think that you're saved, but not enough to actually lead you to true, genuine repentance and faith. This is where a lot of people get Satan wrong. They think that if Satan is going to lie to the world about God, then he's going to come in the form of blatantly false religion. You know, they look to polytheistic Eastern religions, or to Islam, or to Mormonism, or they look to secular humanism, or perhaps even to things like the Church of Satan here in the United States, and they'll say those things are satanic in origin. And according to the Scriptures, I think you could say, it's safe to say that they are, just in one degree or another. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the people who believe those things think they're operating under satanic influence, or that they're trying to serve Satan, or anything like that. But the Scripture says that Satan is the ruler of this present world. And so if we want to understand why people fall into these systems of belief, I think it's a safe bet to say that they all find their root in satanic deception. 
However, what a lot of people miss is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, which is that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And understand, he says that about false apostles who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. The full quote actually goes like this. If you want to turn there, you can read along too. 2 Corinthians 11, 12 to 15. This is what he says. He says, "In, In what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boast admission, they work on the same terms as we do. Right? They're making a claim that they're doing the same thing that Paul's doing. You say, no, I'm not. they're not. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The idea is that these men don't masquerade as unbelievers, right? But as believers. Listen, they, they are hypocrites. Like the Pharisees, they appear to be one thing on the outside, but inside they're really another. And the point is that what they say and do looks appealing. It looks right. Again, they look like angels of light. This is how Satan appears. He doesn't appear with a puff of smoke, carrying a pitchfork, and dressed in a red cave, right? No, he comes with a smile and a sympathetic ear. And with smooth and flattering speech. And he doesn't speak blatant lies, only half truths. He gives you just enough to believe that what you've heard is the truth, just enough to satisfy your questions and curiosity without giving you the real answers. In short, he gives you just enough to blind you. He sees you down in the pit of despair and he throws you a rope, but it's not enough to pull you out, just enough to hang you with. People sometimes wonder why I would ever want to come and do a church plant in the heart of the Bible Belt. I mean, you hear about pastors that go to church plants in the Pacific Northwest or they go to New England because the people in those portions of the the country are are relatively unchurched. That makes sense, right? It makes sense to go to a place where there's no gospel presence and plant a church. But why would you want to come to Southwest Missouri and plant a church when it is arguably one of the most church places in the entire world? And the answer is, because it is one of the most church places in the entire world. Don't get me wrong, I think where we live is probably one of the most spiritually advantageous places to live on the planet. But at the same time, I also think it's one of the most dangerous. No doubt, you probably have a better chance of hearing the gospel here than you do perhaps anywhere else in the world. The southern United States is really the place to be if you want to hear something about the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners and the freeness with which He offers that salvation to the world solely by grace through faith. This is the place to be if you want to hear that. However, at the same time, what this also means is that there is going to be a proliferation of false gospels here which are intended to confuse the true gospel and lead people away from the truth. You go back to the parable of the weeds in Matthew 13, and Jesus says that this is what happens. As seed is scattered across the earth, the enemy sows tares as well, which you will recall look like the genuine article at first. And he does this in order to attack and destroy the crop, to hinder the work of the good seed. That's why I tend to think that this is both a spiritually advantageous and spiritually dangerous place to live. There is true seed here. 
But where there is true seed, there is also going to be much false. And this false seed, these tares, they'll make you twice as much a child of hell as they are. They'll seal you in your unbelief by inoculating you against the gospel with their false religion. I mean, at least when you're in an unreached people group and someone comes and they tell you about Jesus, at least then you know that someone is telling you to believe in something different, something new. The problem here is that the false looks so much like the real that when someone tells you the true gospel, there's a decent chance you'll ignore them, and not because you've actually received it, but because you think you've already heard it and received it. You don't even realize that you're lost. You think that you're saved. You think you're in the kingdom. But it's actually you that Jesus is speaking about when He says that there will be many on the day of judgment who think that they know Him, to whom He will say, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. And understand, I don't say that. I know that can sound scary or something. Understand, I don't say that as some kind of detached, unaffected observer. That was me when I prayed the sinner's prayer in third grade. I was the one infected with the false gospel, and that's why I want to be here. I've been deceived, and I understand the danger that it represents, and so I want to be here because this is where the battle is raging hot, and this is where the work is hard, and I get it. I understand that the church are a mission field. And they're not just a mission field, but they're perhaps the hardest mission field there is because many of the people here have been vaccinated against the gospel with a weakened strain of the gospel, with false gospels. The fact of the matter is that southwest Missouri is about the closest thing you're going to get to first century Israel today. And so when you see Jesus talking about the effect that these false teachers had, And understand, please understand this, he's talking about the ones who knew their Bibles. Again, these weren't members of the the church of Satan and going and demonstrating at courthouses to, to worship Satan. These weren't those guys. These were the Bible scholars of their day. They sat on the seat of Moses. And not ten verses before this, he was saying to the people, do as they say, but not as they do. In other words, these aren't pagans. These are Jews who took their Bibles very seriously. When you see that Jesus is saying that these men shut people out of the kingdom and made people twice as much a child of hell as themselves, that should hit close to home. This is not a situation that's foreign to us. This is where we live. This is the atmosphere that we breathe. And so the question that I need you to ask yourself is this. Is it possible that I have been deceived? Is it possible that I have believed in a false gospel? Please don't just assume that you're in Christ simply because you're showing up here at church week in and week out. Again, Jesus says that there will be many in the day of judgment that will point to their works and say that they've done many good and worthy deeds in the name of Christ, and He's still going to reject them because they didn't actually know Him, or rather, He didn't know them. It's possible that you've been vaccinated against the Gospel, and if so, then I think the first step in finding true repentance and salvation is in at least recognizing that possibility. Again, the way false religion works is that it gives you just enough truth to make you think that you've believed. 
You look at the external righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, for instance, and and what makes it so deceptive is that the person who accepts that system is working very hard for their salvation. Right? I mean, the one who listens to them, clearly they're not apathetic about salvation. I mean, they're doing something about it. The problem is that the remedy that the scribes and Pharisees have offered them will not make them well. So it's easy for their disciples to think that they're going to heaven because they want to go to heaven and they're trying very hard to do it. And what they're doing under the direction of their so-called Bible scholars, that seems safe. And yet they're deceived. And now because of that, the scribes and the Pharisees have given them something to hope in. Something that's partially right, which they're not going to re-examine again. As Jesus says, they're twice as much a child of hell as the scribes and Pharisees. They're sealed in their unbelief by their inability or even their unwillingness to reevaluate their spiritual state. They're locked in. So don't do this. Don't repeat that error and just assume that because you believe something about Jesus that you believe the right thing. Examine yourself. You know, you get some people who will tell you, don't you ever question your salvation. (laughs) I have to say, no, no, question your salvation. There's nothing wrong with doing that from time to time. I mean, I wouldn't say that should be a normal, ongoing, regular aspect of your Christian life, but it is appropriate from time to time. Paul urges the Corinthians to examine themselves in 2 Corinthians 13. He urges the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 2. Peter tells his readers, we read it this morning, Peter tells his readers to be diligent to confirm their calling in election in 2 Peter 1. There is just this repeated call in Scripture to reflect on and consider our place in the kingdom of heaven. And just to be sure, that is not a call to ask if we've done enough to enter into heaven. And it doesn't mean question the faithfulness of God. No, the idea is to question what message have I believed in and have I believed in it? Am I deceived? Or have I believed in the truth? That's an appropriate question to be asking when we understand that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So where do we look to answer this question? I think it's probably the question we should be asking ourselves at this point. Clearly there's a lot of confusion out there, potentially about the gospel. There are false gospels in circulation. And we can't just trust our leaders, right? Because it's possible they're false apostles. That was a mistake that Israel made. They trusted their leaders implicitly. That's ultimately what shut them out of the kingdom of heaven. They trusted their leaders even when the truth in front of them was pointing them in the opposite direction. This is how they ended up twice as much a child of hell as them. They refused to evaluate the trustworthiness of their leaders. So we can't just trust our leaders. And we can't just trust ourselves, our own inclinations about what seems true. After all, it's possible that even we ourselves have been deceived about the truth. So where do we turn to discover what God has really said about our salvation. I think the Scriptures give us a model to follow in Acts 17. If you would, go ahead and turn there briefly. Acts 17. In Acts 17, Paul and Silas visit Thessalonica. And while they're in Thessalonica, they try to reason with the Jews there in the synagogues, arguing with them from the Scriptures as they try to make the case for Jesus as the Christ. And some believe, even among the God-fearing Greeks and and devout women there. But in verse 5, some of the Jews got jealous over this. There's this whole praise of man thing again. And so what do the leaders do? Well, they do what hypocrites do. 
right? Again, they're not motivated by actual concern for the glory of God, but by the praise of men. And so they ignore what Paul and Silas have to say, and instead they gather a mob and drag some of the believers before the authorities and try to have them punished. They bully and they intimidate. In verse 10, Paul and Silas escape under the cover of darkness to Berea. And this is what Luke has to say about what happened when they visited the synagogue there. He says, starting in verse 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women and of high standing as well as men. Now, again, Luke praises the Jews here, right? And you can see why. They didn't just ignore what Paul and Silas had to say because it was something they hadn't heard before. And yet they didn't accept it at face value either, right? No, they searched the Scriptures and they evaluated the message by how it measured up against the Scripture. I think this is where we have to go if we're going to properly evaluate whether or not we have believed in the true Gospel. We can't just accept what's popular. In other words, we can't decide what's true based on the majority opinion. After all, Jesus says in Matthew 7 that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many, whereas the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So we can't just go with the majority position. After all, Jesus says it's actually more likely that the gospel is going to be the minority position than it is to be the position of the majority. And we can't just trust what our religious leaders say, because in the very next verses in Matthew 7, Jesus says that we have to watch out for false prophets who come in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. There are false prophets who will present themselves as spiritual leaders and then twist and distort the gospel for their own personal gain. So we can't just trust what our leaders have to say. And as we said a moment ago, we can't trust our own opinion, because in the verses right after that, in Matthew 7, after the one about the, the broad path and the narrow path, after the one about the uh, leaders dressed as uh, or wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, right after that, we have uh, this warning where Jesus says that there's going to be many people in the day of judgment who have been deceived about the truth themselves. They're going to think that they know Jesus and still be rejected by Him. And so, where do we go if we want to know what is the true gospel and which is the false? And I think the answer is in verse 24 of Matthew 7. Or after all these other warnings, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, and does not do them rather, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell And great was the fall of it. Jesus is the rock upon which our salvation rests. And so if we want to know whether or not we have believed in Him, then we turn to Him and give heed to the words that He spoke. We listen to what He has to say about salvation, and we find that in the pages of sacred Scripture. Right? So if we're going to know the gospel that Jesus truly proclaimed, then like the Bereans, we need to search the pages of Scripture and evaluate whether or not the gospel in which we have believed matches up with the one that Jesus proclaimed. And that's what we're going to do in part two of this message next week. You know, this is a very serious question that we have to answer about ourselves. And so I think this deserves more 
than a cursory treatment. As I was preparing this week, I was trying to think, like, do I just try to push through? I think I've counted something like eight false gospels that I think are prevalent in particular where we live. I was trying to think, do we just press through and try to get it all done in one week? And I just, I don't think that we should do that given how important this is and how deceptive these false gospels are. They deserve, they deserve a full treatment. And so with that in mind, what I want to do next week is present and evaluate several false gospels that I think are prominent in the church today. All of these false gospels, I think you will see, are partially right. They got something right about them. That's part of what makes them so appealing. So what I want to do is explain them. I want to explore what makes them appealing, what they got right, and then what they get wrong. And my hope is that in this, if you've been vaccinated with a false gospel, then perhaps this can begin to counteract the effects. If you can think about the, if you can think of a false gospel kind of like a poison, then my hope is to administer the antivenom by showing you what Jesus really said about why he came to this earth. And as I do this, your job is going to be twofold, or I guess actually threefold, I suppose. First, you need to examine whether or not what I'm saying is true, right? You have to start there. I'm going to present to you, I'm going to say this is the gospel, these are false gospels. Your first step is you've got to evaluate to see if what I'm saying is actually true. You need to be a Berean, check the scripture. Then, if it is, you need to consider whether or not you have believed in the true gospel. And if you have believed, then at least consider what false gospels may still affect your thinking in your sanctification. I think it's very possible to believe in the true gospel while still allowing these false gospels that surround us to affect your thinking as a Christian and to affect your sanctification. So put some thought into that as well. And then finally, third, I want you to consider which gospel you proclaim. Again, we have to keep in mind that Jesus prefaces this denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees by first saying to the crowds and to the disciples, don't be like them. So after you've reflected on which gospel you believe in, I want you to consider that as well. Ask yourself, do I articulate the gospel clearly? Or do I perhaps, even by mistake, proclaim a false gospel to those around me? I think that's a very real possibility, so we need to consider that as well. And in the meantime, as we prepare for that message, I want you to pray. I want you to pray. We know that it's ultimately only by the power of the Holy Spirit, that any of us can have our spiritual blindness and death removed, right? This was the whole point of the two blind men that Jesus healed outside of Jericho. It was to show that Jesus was the one who had the authority to remove Israel's spiritual blindness. Well, with this in mind, let's pray that God would be at work in this body. So if there's anyone in here who has not believed in Christ, let's pray that they might see it and repent, right? In fact, let's close this morning by go ahead and let's do that this morning as we close. Let's pray that God, if there be anyone here who doesn't believe in the true gospel, that that would be made evident. And that for those of us who do, again, that if there's any error in us, if, there's, if it's affecting our sanctification, affecting the way that we proclaim the gospel, that that would be rooted out as well, that God would use His Word to purify our thinking about the gospel. Right? Let's pray.